when I did my last book, which was Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, I needed to find these things called bond market vigilantes because apparently they're very powerful. So I started going to bond conferences and I found them and it turned out they weren't anything like they were meant to be portrayed in the press. These sort of rabid vultures that are about to like defenestrate state budgets and throw old people under the bus so they can get their yield. Very few of them are actually like that. And I started going to these finance conferences and I ran into Eric. And Eric and I got into a lot of conversations which other people found interesting. We ended up on panels together. And eventually people said, you guys should write something because you have an ability to kind of strip it down and get to its essence, which is really useful. So neither of us had the time to really write a whole new book. So what we did was a hack for writing a book. We basically said... What do we want to write about? We want to write about why the world's never been so rich on average and yet never so pissed off in terms of its politics. So we split it up into like four or five themes, gave each other a bunch of reading to do, and then we met up in London for a week. And we sat in a rental for a week and sat with a couple of iPhones and basically talked the book. So we got Siri to transcribe it, and it was awful. She doesn't do punctuation well, particularly with an Irishman and a Scotsman. And we kind of got it knocked into shape and then we read it through. And when you read it as a normal book, it has all of the pathologies of a normal book. It's two guys, two rich white guys, basically, who know everything, telling you how the world works. And that was not how the conversation sounded. So we put it back into dialogue format and kept it as a dialogue. And it was much better. Suddenly it was much more open-ended. There was doubt. There was discussion. And it allowed us to focus during those conversations on the notion of anger itself. So rather than just like, you write about, I write about, we're done, right? Because it was a live conversation and we could go back to it and then get into it, we kind of discovered angrynomics through the process. That was kind of the key to the whole thing. So sort of hone in on angrynomics. You know, you make this case that there's maybe two different types of anger. There's good and bad anger. And I wondered if you could just expand a little on that to talk about the differences between, for example, moral outrage and the tribal rage that radiates out of social media accounts, our TV screens, the radio, the newspapers. Absolutely. So the first thing we looked at when you look into the literature on anger and some of the stuff in psychology and different, I mean, there's so much stuff written about this. It's hard to get your head around the whole thing. But what we did find was a broad distinction between public anger and private anger. And private anger is like, you know, you lose your shit in the pub, right? It's nothing to be proud of. Usually it's a source of shame. It's something for counselling. But on the other hand, public anger is often associated with moral outrage. And that moral outrage is usually about being ignored, not being heard. And that there are legitimate grievances here subjectively felt, whether they're legitimate or not. And they need to be outraged. They need to be performed. They need to be shown in public so that the people in charge will pay attention to you. And we thought this was a very interesting way of thinking about the politics of the prior 10 to 15 years. The whole sort of move to like Davos man and technocrats and elites running everything. And politicians essentially doing very little apart from tweet things like, oh, I guess that being a someone who kidnaps children is bad. Yeah, well, that's obvious, right? So what about central banks? They're the ones that are doing everything, more technocrats, right? 
So politics was getting hollowed out. And the stuff that was happening to people in terms of increasing inequality, increasing stress, job insecurity, simply wasn't getting talked about. It's like everything was fine. Look over there. Don't look over here. And that wellspring of anger, which came out in Brexit, which came out in Trump, but also came out in support for Bernie, came out in the Corbyn moment in the Labour Party, right? That was that legitimate anger side that we were trying to get at. The other way that we look at it, as you pointed out, was this notion of what the weaponization of that. And we basically think that there's a, a kind of unholy alliance between the media, mainstream and social, and uh, politicians on this one. If you think about Trump, CNN wouldn't have a business model if it wasn't for Trump. Everything that they talk about, all of the revenues, the programs, everything is about Trump and how awful he is. Now, irrespective of that, that tells you something about the way that these things can be weaponized for mutual benefit so that one depends upon the other. But the consequence of that is this poisoning and polarization of our politics, whereby what we're meant to do, come together and argue and discuss about what we should do, the ends of stuff, is either reduce the kind of technical questions where we're not allowed to be part of it, that's the moral outrage side, or you're invited to join a tribe, us against them, everything's zero sum, right? So there was the weaponization of that on, on one side, and then you had public anger and private anger on the other side with moral outrage being the most interesting part for us. And with lots of examples in the book, as you know, about Icelanders finding out that their entire ruling class is stashing money in Panama. That caused much more upset than the breakdown of all their banks 10 years earlier. Right, those sorts of things. So we're trying to basically figure out what exactly anger's telling us about our politics, but also to turn that around and say, what are the underlying economics which are driving that anger too? And that's angrynomics. You kind of alluded there to the hollowing out of the political centre over the past sort of couple of decades. The end of history was announced in what was it 1990 by Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. It was kind of derided at the time, but there seems to have been this enduring sense after that in centrist politics that maybe he was right, this kind of liberal complacency that saw, you know, last year in 2019, this kind of year of international protest movements, some of which had obvious pro-democratic roots like in Hong Kong, but others of which were, came about as a response to cuts in the, social, in the public sector in Lebanon, for example. You know, you, you heard these kind of pillars of liberal values places like The Economist, refuting the argument that what united these different separate angry movements was uh, rage at global inequality, at some of the things that you've discussed in your book. Why do you think that political centre is so resistant to acknowledging that perhaps it hasn't quite done enough to carry people along with it, that perhaps history didn't end and that it does need to start engaging with new policymaking ideas to kind of answer this public outrage. So a couple of different ways of thinking about this. There's the whole behavioural nudge stuff that was very sort of emblematic of this, which is, hey, see all you people in America who are overweight, dangerously overweight? That's your choices. I don't want to interfere with that. We could actually have a frank discussion about food and consumption and inequality and wages, but that's a bit difficult. And frankly, I don't really want, as a member of the top 10%, for you to be a tax liability for me years down the line. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to nudge you into these better behaviours. I'm going to ration how much soda you get and all this sort of stuff, right? So it's a way of kind of getting to a political outcome you want with no discussion, with no consent. That's just a micro example, right? 
Think about what happened in, in British politics, right, under Tony Blair, for example. You find this with uh, social democratic parties in general in the period from the 80s to the 90s. Is this move to the centre, but that move to the centre is essentially abandoning your traditional constituencies, right, the working class, basically, this is who this is, and trying to catch those voters in the middle that are more affluent, more educated. You start to talk about the knowledge economy workers, it's the growth of the city, suddenly finance is your best friend, etc., etc., well, that worked as a kind of redistributive model for that period, so long as the banks didn't blow up. And then they did. And it was kind of exposed to be a bit of a giant fraud that was basically skewing all the income and wealth to particular regions and particular persons. And that's not just a British story. That's basically why the Trump uh, supporters rage against the coastal elites. New York alone has $3.4 trillion of real estate wealth. Over the past 30 years, we've effectively turned housing, not from something that you live in, into an asset class that's owned by the top 20%. So what we're trying to get into in the book is how these economic trends and stresses over time basically compound and, and fall upon us as a kind of a micro-level set of anger-inducing things. We talk about technological change, the uncertainties of that, the precarious nature of work that that engenders is one of those examples. Aging in the economy is another one of those examples. But also the big macro stuff, right? When the economy, like in 2008, fails, who actually bears the cost for that? And what are the long-term consequences of that in politics? So that's how we're trying to think about political parties, not just as things that direct things for us, but are things that are being pushed along and shaped by these wider economic forces too. You mentioned technology there, and one of the bits of the book that really leapt out at me is, uh, obviously over the past few years, the idea of universal basic income has gained more currency, so to speak. People have been kicking it around. And you know, among the problems with it that have been noted is this idea that no one is entitled to a free lunch, right? You shouldn't give money away for free. I do want to talk about the kind of politics of that argument in the context of your book in a moment. But I just wanted to get into this idea of um, data as a potential place from which something analogous to universal basic income might yeah. come from. We're jumping to the end of the book. Basically, a lot of books will tell you everything that's wrong with the world and then go, right, well, you know, that's you stuffed, bye. And we thought we'd try and do better than that. And we'd come up with concrete ideas at the end, which we hope are basically cross-party, cross-political, etc. And one of those is basically a digital dividend. What do we mean by this? Well, if you think about it, 20% of the S&P index in the United States is basically five technology firms. In fact, it's more than 20% now. So it's the fangs, Facebook, Apple, Google, that sort of stuff, right? And what do we do? We give them the source of their profits for free. So when you open up a Facebook account and put your page and link to your friends, all the rest of it, that's what they're monetizing. Now, their argument is, well, if we charge for the platform, nobody would use it and there would be a net loss for everyone. Right. Okay, fair enough. You know, it's a bit like saying if we set up gas stations, everybody needs to drive cars. I'm not sure that that really holds. But more importantly, these firms are becoming incredibly powerful. You see the situation with Amazon and its workers and the way that they're being treated. Meanwhile, Mr. Bezos is earning $160 million a day. There's reasons we regard economic concentration as a problem. So if you want to do something about that, how about we basically don't give away our stuff for free? What we do is kind of have a national registry. You can opt in and opt out. There's various different models for this that you could discuss. And essentially, you can auction your data. 
to these firms and then you can have various degrees of how much data access you want to give them. Analogous way to think about this is what we do with mobile phones. Right, so basically you open up a chunk of the electromagnetic spectrum and you auction it off for a period of 20 years and then they bid for it. Well, when you do that, you raise lots of revenue for things that we need. Let's not even mention COVID, but we could talk about, for example, better healthcare services, better wages for central workers, etc. Actual redistribution that would make sense. And that would be one of the funding sources we could do this because basically the super profits that they're able to earn, these monopoly rents by being the firms that they are, is not down to the fact that they're wizards with technology. It's their market position and their ability to hoist huge barriers to entry to anyone else. I was also struck by this helicopter drop thing. I'm drawing maybe parallels that you might sort of argue with in the book, but it's this idea of, I suppose, free money, right? In the instance of the data, that's not free because it's us being paid for... Yeah, you're selling an asset. Totally, you're selling an asset. Fundamentally, it relies on political will, right? Yeah, absolutely. With the helicopter drop, with the idea that these monopolies need to be kind of regulated, if not broken up, there needs to be political will to bring this money into the kind of public realm. Mm -hmm. I wondered what your sort of reflections are on that, given that, you know, you also talk about populism as part of the response to this anger that people are feeling. And it seems like some of the figures that you list, you know, Trump, Orban, Farage, they have leveraged tribal anger to kind of consolidate their own positions as economic elites, as much as political Yeah, elites. absolutely. And I guess I'm wondering how you think you detach that kind of human fallibility, that conniption from yeah. the need for, from these brilliant solutions to inequality, but how you kickstart those when these special interests occupy such incredible positions of power in the world. That's certainly true. But the thing is, you know, there are exceptions rather than rules. I mean, last time I checked, Farage doesn't actually run anything, right? And if you told me that the British government under Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party's major policy response to a pandemic would be to guarantee 80% of all wages which is direct monetary financing, which is helicopter money, which we were told we could never do. Looks like you can do a lot of things if you put your mind to it. I think that the post-COVID response on this is going to be fascinating. The sources of anger that we talk about in the book have been sent home very much like everyone else. They haven't gone away. And certain societies are able to do this better than others. There's a very strong correlation between the degree of trust you have in your government and your lockdown effectiveness. So the natural experiment that everyone's looking at is Sweden on the one hand, Denmark on the other. One is voluntarism, one is basically you're doing this. But they're both very high trust, very high kind of social capital countries, right? On the other hand, you have the United States at the other extreme. Complete polarization, zero airbags, partial healthcare coverage, and an economy which is a bit like a five-litre Mustang GT with an extra supercharger. So long as it's going in a straight line at 100 miles an hour, everybody wins. The minute you try and slow it down and send it to the garage all at once, bad shit happens, right? So the way that these different economies respond to it are going to basically channel the anger that we write about in, in those different directions. Already polarised societies are likely to become more polarised. What we see in the way that the United States has handled the shock absorber, if you will, I don't want to call it bailout, that's, that's only partial, the shock absorber that's been built is essentially the Federal Reserve has put a floor under prices by saying, I will buy everything, including ETFs and investment grade corporate debt, which is unprecedented, right? 
Then beyond that floor, in comes the treasury and basically gives money to all these companies, which thereby saves the value of the assets of the portfolio the Republicans care about. And then at the end of the day, what do you do for ordinary workers? Well, you give them a temporary extension on unemployment benefits and you send them a $1,200 check. Who uses a check in the 21st century? I mean, seriously, who uses a check? That's totally insane. You're doing that because essentially you want to get your priorities in order and then worry about everybody else, right? I think that's going to generate an awful lot of anger once it's over because this is going to continue longer than we think. So some societies are going to be better at this than others. People often say it's kind of a platitude that moments of great global crisis are the only opportunities for real change to be made. The classic example is the kind of creation of the NHS in the UK Mm. in the aftermath of World War II. As you were writing this book in the way that you wrote it, as you were conversing this book, no one saw this coming. You didn't see this coming. Did you think that some of the policies, some of the ideas that you were kicking around had a reasonable chance of finding widespread adoption? And how different does that look now in the kind of COVID world? Yeah, so I'll give you a perfect example of this. So one of the major ideas that we have is for a citizen's wealth fund. Think of those sovereign wealth funds that you've all heard about, like Norway and Singapore and the rest of it, right? So what do they do? They basically buy equities. They buy 0.25% of everything, hold it passively. Equities grow on average at around 6% a year, minus occasional volatility. That's why everybody invests in stock markets if you have the money to invest in the first place. Ta-da, got it, right. Now, the way we were thinking about it was, imagine 2008. 2008, equities fall because everyone dumps stocks because you want to hold safe assets. You want cash or you want bonds. So what that means is, technically, the government's cost of capital moves inversely to that of the private sector. More simply, bonds get expensive, but everybody wants them, at the same time that equities get cheap. So why not have an independent, quasi-governmental, no politicians involved agency that gets a line of credit from the treasury and buys all those equities that get dumped? This time we don't hand them back after the crisis. We just build a passive fund. If you did that with 20% of GDP and you held it for 10 years, you would generate not just the ability to pay back the borrowing if there was any cost involved in that, but the ability to redistribute billions without actually raising anybody's personal taxes. Now, along comes COVID. Eric and I are looking at this and we're like, oh my God, this is one of those moments, right? The S&P is going to fall 40%, 50%, even with the Fed putting its floor under prices. So this is the perfect moment. If you had that fund, you could do this. And then long term, you could use the funding from that to basically help people who've been massively displaced by this rebuild, rescale, move, all the things you could do, right? Instead of which, what did we do? We basically put a floor under prices, bailed out the companies directly with the money that could have been used to buy their equity. We didn't tell them to issue new equity, which they completely could have done. Instead, we just gave them cash. And then as a consequence of that, the insiders are made whole. They're the ones that are still holding those assets which haven't fallen in value. The businesses that have been crushed, you got private equity sitting on the side. One and a half trillion of what they call dry powder, i.e. their funds. So they're basically walking around like mafiosos saying to cash-starved businesses, hey, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. So what happens is, coming out of this, rather than the public owning the upside of that, more and more equity will be held by private equity, which is a tiny game for the 1%. So massive lost opportunity. If we'd had that in place, we could have done so much better. It seems as though, from observing only the past five years or so, of the kind of aftermath of austerity, of the rise of populism post-2016 and all that, that one of the things that moderate and even 
non-moderate but kind of non-populist voices have failed to do is to kind of mm-hmm. assume control of the narrative quote unquote totally. in any sort of meaningful way and in order to diffuse some of the anger, in order to implement some e- economic policies that will do this, mm-hmm. people who have an instinct towards a sort of moderacy will need to take political power. And I wonder what your reflections are just on how that narrative of tribalism can be subverted in order to start fixing things. The one way to think about it is we've always been tribal. It's a question of which tribe. The weird thing about the 90s and into the early 2000s, this high point of, if you will, what Danny Roderick calls hyper-globalization, of the high point of, you know, the EU doling out austerity to its members, etc., and countries suddenly discovering that if you don't have a printing press and you hit with a financial shock, it can get really bad really quick, right? The nation was traditionally the container for both democracy and capitalism. What happened between the 70s, 80s, and 90s was that capitalism went global, but democracy stayed local. And I think what unites the sort of the the better elements of populism, and I'm not, I don't necessarily mean right or left on this one, I just mean basically the ones who are thinking about this better, is that there has to be some kind of reintegration of where the borders for democracy and responsibility stop which means you can't just hand things out to the central bank. You can't just blame the EU. It's on you. You're responsible for governing. But then you've got to have some degree of actual control over the economic levers in the country. And I don't disagree with that. I also think that, uh, I think I'm speaking for Eric as well in this one, you know, giant international agreements with everyone drinking champagne and eating canopies like the Copenhagen Agreement, it's all great for the cameras. But when you go home, you're responsible at your national electorates. You're not responsible to these big agreements you've signed up to. So that disconnect, I think, needs to be healed. And I think, if you will, I hate to use the word progressive because I'm never sure exactly what it means, but a better version of using the anger that's there, of taking that tribalism and not weaponizing it against each other, but is to basically redraw the boundaries of where economy and democracy come together so that we are actually responsible to each other and responsible for what we do. And we can't just hack it off to technocrats and then get angry when it goes wrong. You mentioned this missed opportunity a moment ago in the kind of post-COVID economic recovery from the recession that this has already catalyzed. Do you see any kind of glimmers of hope anywhere else? So the big question on this is how long does it last? It's unprecedented and, you know, the book isn't about this, but we do have a postscript in this, which basically makes two claims. You sent the anger home like the labour market doesn't mean it's gone away, right? What you've got already will come back amplified. We've already spoken about that. But here's another way to think about it. Everyone keeps using the metaphor of a war, right? It's a war against the virus. Well, it's a funny kind of war because in war, people die, but also huge amounts of capital get destroyed. And in this war, no capital is being destroyed. The airlines are just still there. The planes are sitting on the tarmac, right? The restaurants are just closed. Just nobody's going to them. So on the one hand, that should be great because ultimately it means the capital's still there. You get back to work, you redeploy it, right? Okay, but then you have a kind of inverse field of dreams problem. Sorry for the Kevin Costner reference. But if you open it, will they come? Because the longer this goes on, the more people's behavior change, right? Are you really thinking about doing 10 transatlantic flights next year? I don't think anybody is, right? So to me, the really interesting thing is, and this is a hopeful one because it's about the uncertainty of the future, which is what capitalism and innovation actually bloody thrives upon, right? Is that that capital hasn't been destroyed, but it is going to be redeployed. So how do you redeploy this in the most effective way in a post-COVID world? 
And does post-COVID mean it's part of the furniture? We have a vaccine, it's a bit like a flu vaccine. It's going to be with us for a long time because that means a certain set of consequences. Not all bad. It just means you have to adapt to them. So just as, you know, 10 years ago, many of the jobs that we think about today, like data scientists, barely existed, right? Post-COVID, you're going to see a huge reconfiguration and redeployment of the capital that hasn't been destroyed. Commercial real estate's probably in a bad state. 30% of restaurants are probably gone for good. Airlines are in for a fundamental shock when we re-emerge from this much smaller. We know this, right? But what does it mean for other forms of transportation? We don't know yet. We haven't thought that out yet. What does it mean for decarbonization? Probably a lot, along with the collapse in oil prices. So as ever with these shocks, there's a great deal of opportunity. We just have to basically get out of the fear stage and begin to look forward. To relate this back to the book, that's going to be very, very difficult if we have populations that have no trust in their state, no trust in their leaders, and are weaponized and angry about the position that they find themselves in. And that's why at the end of the book, we come back to what we think are very strong policies and proposals, and if you will, a politics that doesn't rely upon just raising taxes and chucking money around, that tries to build assets for ordinary people so that over the long run, the next time a shock hits, the whole, the whole system, the whole society is stronger. It's more robust to shocks. It isn't Nassim Taleb's wonderful phrase, anti-fragile, that you build a society that when you get hit with a shock, it isn't just a punch in the face, it's something that actually improves your muscle tone. That's what you want to get to.